0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're going to ride with the French colonel, or de Franca colonel, as he was known by the Boers, Georges Villebois Moriel, as he headed into the Free State with the International Legion. This episode is slightly longer than usual because the details of the Frenchmen are so intriguing. So please settle back. We will also be introduced to some of the international soldiers who fought for the Boers, including artist Vincent van Gogh's brother, Cor. He had been living in the Transvaal, building locomotives for the President Paul Kruger's government when the war broke out. Naturally, he signed up to fight for the Boers. The French Colonel villouin Moriel was a man steeped in family military tradition, and had arrived in South Africa soon after the war began in October 1899, and then travelled to Ladysmith in November. He was present at the Battle of Colenso, and by January 1900 was well known to the Boer soldiers as he began to advise General Piet Joubert. This was a sensitive matter, as Hubert brooked no interference, but at one point, the Frenchman had suggested an attack on two British outposts that were critical for the defence of the besieged town. These were observation points known as Caesar's Camp and Wagon Hill, and they required attacking at night. On the 2nd of January, General Hubert held a war council at his Huflar, or HQ, above Ladysmith, and it was finally agreed to launch an attack on the town, preceded by the taking of Caesar's camp and Wagon Hill. On the 5th of January, the Boers began to move, little knowing that fate was against them. One of the better organised British commanders, Colonel Hamilton, was in command at Caesar's camp and Wagon Hill. Also, Sir George White, the Ladysmith commander, had issued orders for the various guns there to be moved out onto the plateau, dealing the Boers a blow before the battle started, because the hustle and bustle of artillery moving around meant the British were very wide awake. The battle began before the Frenchmen arrived with the units from Calenzo, and the Boers had also found the going more difficult than they had planned. They were held up. Eventually, the Boers were pinned down, and Villabar-Moriel was scathing. Your bear wouldn't take any responsibility. Your bear listens to nothing. The Boers withdrew, with the French colonel retreating alongside the commandos after sunset. The attack had broadly followed Villebois mauriels suggested route, but he wrote to his daughter Simone, back in France, that They had used my plan only in order to massacre it. The main reason was that the Boers had marched to the Platrant, the plateau between Caesar's camp and Wagon Hill, during the day which the French colonel had said the approach should be made only during the night to ensure maximum surprise. Philippard Moriel's battle tactic had been ignored, and he told Simone that, With the one exception of General Bouter, who continually visits his positions and understands the importance of observations made to him, I have been unable up to now to obtain anything but approbation, never a decision. It was the same complaints he had levelled against senior officers in Europe and North Africa, where he fought with the French Foreign Legion for six years. He was a man of action and bemoaned how slowly generals seemed to move and how politically inclined leadership destroyed a simple military operation. He wouldn't be the last to do so. Finally, on the 24th of January, villabar Moriel arrived at General Cronier's Houfflar in the Free State outside Kimberley. But his first impressions were not good. The Boer general was wearing loose trousers and a light brown overcoat, which was turning green with age. He had a large grey hat on his head and was stooped. Could this be the man that 70,000 Russians in St. Petersburg had honoured with a bratina or a brother's cup, thought Villabar Moriel. However, his attitude changed quickly as he realised Cronier exuded authority and gravitas from his persona, not his uniform. If you cast your mind to the 20th century, the description of Cronier with his dilapidated and modest outfit was very much how Ho Chi Minh was described by visitors to North Vietnam and French Indochina. Villebois, Moriel and Cronier discussed how best to use the Long Tom, the creosote gun freshly refurbished in Pretoria, at Kimberley, which was also still under siege and the War Council there agreed with the French colonel that they should shell key points in Kimberley where the defences were weakest. The Criocet was a French weapon, and national pride filled his letters home. Then the telegram arrived in early February 1900, informing Villabar-Mauriel that the Comte Pierre Del Brede, former lieutenant of the French dragoons, had arrived in Lorenzo Marx or modern-day Maputo with a bunch of officers from his motherland. He was ecstatic. These were household names in France, including René de Charette, descendant of a famous guerrilla fighter, General de Charette, who had fought for royalist cause against the revolutionaries a century before. Villevoir mariel ordered all French officers to join him in Kimberley. The French colonel penned a letter to his brother Christian that night, where he boasted, The entry of the scene of these French officers to charge at the head of the burghers will create a fine effect which simultaneously with that of the French cannon will speak for our country. He followed that up with a flourish in his journal. History to add fresh flowers here to the glory of France. To take Kimberley and see the face of Napoleon of the Cape, mystified by these boers whom he thought he could consume in a mouthful, would be an unusual pleasure. Heady stuff indeed. By Napoleon of the Cape he meant Lord Roberts, who, like Napoleon, was marching towards a capital. In this case it was Pretoria, not Moscow. The British garrison in Kimberley, however, had manufactured a homemade large gun of their own called Long Cecil that could reach Boer positions. That was the American engineer Labram's work, and these two guns indulged in a contest of heavyweights. On one side, an American expert working for the British, and on the other, a French expert working for the Boers. It was a personal duel which Labram lost. He was dressing for dinner one night when a long tom shell scored a direct hit on the Grand Hotel, and decapitated him. Townsfolk took refuge in the mines while on the hills outside. Villabar Moriel fumed. The apple was ripe right for the picking, he thought. It was time to attack Kimberley, but Boer General Dutoy, who was in charge, disagreed. In the days that followed the initiative switched rapidly from the Boers to the British, and their sharpshooters pushed forward and started targeting the long tom gunners. Villabar Moriel spent long hours with these men, helping pick targets in the besieged town. But the attack he favoured never came, and he left a week later in some disgust. He also sent the French officers, who'd arrived in Kimberley, back to Pretoria by train, with orders to join him in the Karoo town of Colesburg later. More volunteers were arriving from Portuguese East Africa, and villabal Moriel believed he had the core of what he regarded as a core elite. In mid-February, he received the news that Lord Roberts' column was approaching the Modo River and he wrote to Simone, The danger they dreaded is coming to them all the same. They will not escape. I am leaving this instant for the Modo, where a battle is imminent. Twenty-four hours after he penned the letter on the 14th of February, General French's cavalry arrived in Kimberley and relieved the town. Worse, when Villebar-Moriel rode up to General Cronier's camp on the mortar, he found panic and disorder. Cronier was running out of energy and ideas, and he told the Francais Colonel that, Alles is verloren, everything is lost, and began moving 5,000 men, women, and children at the pace of his ox wagons towards Bloemfontein, the Free State capital. A German gunnery officer by the name of Major Albrecht suggested Cronier leave his wagons, but he refused. Albrecht was a professional soldier who'd taken part in the German war with France in 1870. He knew that there could be no real contest between a professional army led by a man like Lord Kitchener, which was tracking Cronier, and this band of heroic farmers, some with their wives and children in tow. Another German officer, Sturdenberg, gave up too, and then invited Willibar Moriel to join him on the banks of the picturesque Moda River for a roast mutton dinner. He also had an excellent bottle of 1881 Burgundy to drink with it. The Boers had left, and these few men sat together as the sun set, eating their last meal alone in their thoughts of missed opportunities. villabar Moriel wrote in his journal that night, Stunenberg smokes cigars at five shillings each and goes for three days without washing himself or taking off his boots to sleep. Extra dry champagne was his usual drink, but he is satisfied now with whisky and a piece of boiled beef. The next day, Stunenberg was captured by the British and imprisoned in the Cape, where he was fed fresh roast beef. The Kaiser personally intervened then to have Stunenberg released, and a short time later, he emerged in London. You can't make history like this up, it's so bizarre. Back in the Free State, villabar Moriel rode eastwards towards Bloemfontein, which he reached on the 18th of February. Simultaneously, General Cronier had just begun 10 days of hell, encircled by the British at pardeberg After a day recovering, the Franca colonel headed west to the pardeberg hoping to give support to the Boers. When he observed how extensively Cronier was surrounded, he knew the Boer general and his followers were goners, and returned to Bloemfontein, where he met military attaches from France, Russia, America, the Netherlands, Germany, Japan, Algeria, and even the Philippines. The Japanese, you see, were about to wage a war successfully against the Russians, and the sight of these attaches and observers proves how inexorably the entire world was lurching towards terrible World War I. Villabar-Moriel, though, had problems of his own, and reflected in a late February journal that, I am marvelously well now, but I am at a ragged sight, Everything I have is dirty and my money is gone. So by March 1900, Cronier and the 5,000 with him had been captured. All along the Moda River, the British were driving inexorably to Bloemfontein and the Boers were falling back. The morale of his men had fallen so low, most wanted to go home. Villabar Moriel wrote that at the beginning of the war, the Boers had no generals, and now he felt they had no men. Things in this war have always been tinged with the bizarre, and so too the next incident. Bulubar Moriel decided to set up his small unit's camp at the intersection of the Petersburg and Abrahamskral Road. There, he bumped into a group of around 40 mercenaries, many French-speaking. But others were Russian, including Prince Bagration of Tiflis, who walked about with two huge Cossacks as his attendants, although we'd call them V. R. P. bodyguards these days. Let me dwell for a moment on this irony. The prince, you see, was a descendant of one of the famous names of military annals in Russia, a distinguished general of the family who had helped drive Napoleon from Russia in 1812, and also actually appears in Tolstoy's literary masterpiece war and peace. And ironically, Prince Bagration was eventually captured by the British and was then sent to St Helena, where Napoleon himself was exiled. As I say, you can't make this stuff up. These two, a Russian prince and a French nobleman-soldier, met in South Africa, fighting a war on the same side. Stranger still was the meeting on March 17, 1900, where Colonel de villebar Moriel walked into a room at Kronstadt in the Free State where an historic war council had gathered. Thirty senior Boer officers were there, together with the presidents of both Boer republics, Kruger and Steyn. The French colonel felt vindicated when he heard why he'd been called. All foreign units and individuals serving with the Boer commandos would be organized into an international legion under his command, He was also promoted to Combat General or facht General, becoming the only foreigner ever to hold the rank of general in the Boer army. He also heard the next phase of the partisan guerrilla war would begin soon and one which had a French link. A whole century had gone by since the War of the Vendee in France in 1793. After the guillotining of Louis XVI, the west of France rose up, fighting for a royalist cause in what was a long-drawn-out partisan war. Many in France understood that link. For example, French poet Théodore Botrel described the Boers as Les vendiens du Transvaal. The French partisans of 1793 were also centred in the village of Montagu and the house of Bois Corbeau, which was the family home of Georges de Villabar-Mauriel, the de France colonel. Back in Kronstadt, our French officer was conflicted. Proud to be a new general, yet nervous about some of the material from which he had been invited to form an international legion. He was not alone. At about the same time, General Piet Joubert in Natal had sent a telegram to State Secretary Rates in Pretoria saying, Things are being made impossible for me here, mainly by the volunteer corps of Irish, Russian, Dutch, French, etc. A lot of them being sent here unfamiliar with our language and customs, unfamiliar and unsuitable for our way of making war. They are costing the country a lot of money. Some of them are being shot dead without any benefit to our cause. Slightly harsh, but true. I'll spend more time on the internationals later, because these stories are both extraordinary and riveting. But at this point, I need to mention the Dutchman, Cor van Gogh. He was the brother of Vincent van Gogh, the painter, And by the time the war broke out in South Africa, he had been in the country for a decade, helping to build locomotives for the Netherlands' South African railways. He also worked at the Cornucopia gold mine in Germiston, south of Johannesburg. Cor van Gogh, like his brother Vincent, loved literature. Cor was eventually captured in the Free State, then was moved to a small hospital at a town called Brandfort near Bloemfontein. That's where Cor van Gogh took his own life. Like his brother Vincent, far away in Europe. There is another historical reflection here. Nelson Mandela's troubled wife, Winnie Mandela, was incarcerated under house arrest in the same town, Brunfort, during apartheid, many, many years later. Another fascinating character who fought for the Boers in the International Legion was the American Colonel John Blake. He had graduated from West Point and served with the 6th United States Cavalry in Arizona, made famous by General Custer. Colonel Blake had been in South Africa for three years when the Anglo-Boer War started. But I'll talk about these characters later, and in particular, the Russians. But now back to Villebois Moriel. So he's planning to move the Legion to Kronstadt to oppose the British advance. What I'm fascinated by is the speed at which things happen in those days. Imagine an international unit that doesn't exist, in the middle of a war, pulled together, supplied, trained, and then moved to a front hundreds of kilometres away, in a foreign country, all in the space of two weeks. Vlubar Moriel's second-in-command in in the International Legion was a Russian by the name of Colonel Maximov. There is a book about him, written by Sister Izian Dinova, called, excuse my pronunciation, Neshkolto Mishyachev-U-Burov, which means A Few Months with the Boers. She had a highly chauvinistic attitude, though, towards the internationals, except for what she called the splendid Russians. She described Maximov as more diplomatic than Villabar morial and she was probably correct. So the International Legion set up operations in Kronstadt, north of Bloemfontein, in the Free State, under the command of Fecht-General Villabar morial where the Frenchman was the very epitome of discipline. One of his fellow Frenchmen, the Royal d'Echergoyne, wrote that The Colonel eats very little and takes grilled meat. He drinks tea and milk and never touches wine or spirits. He does not smoke. He is a striking contrast to the rest of us who eat like ogres, drink like sponges, and smoke like engines. On the evening of the 24th of March, 1900, Boulevard Moriel planned an expedition and handed over command to Colonel Maximov. The French colonel, who was a general, said he'd send orders in a few days, but had secret plans to conduct a lightning attack on a small British outpost at a place called Bossov. Then he'd return to his international legion after proving their worth to the Boer comrades. He never returned. The French colonel, who was now a general, led a small column out of Kronstadt that night, and on precisely the same evening, 24th of March, in Paris, Subscribers to the popular literary journal La Revue Bleu were reading the latest edition, featuring a profile of Villebois-Mauriel. It was written by novelist Maison Forestier. The introduction includes these lines. Whether Villebois-Mauriel perishes, The most probable outcome since the hour, alas, is sombre for the Boers, Or whether, by a brilliant turn of fortune, In that land near the rocks where the English tortured Napoleon... He means St Helena. Fate intends him as the avenger of the Great Vanquished One. Whatever happens, this man is climbing towards fame, perhaps even glory. Remember the last podcast where Villabar Moriel led a detachment of Frenchmen towards the Germans during the War of 1870 and was then shot in the leg. Now he leads a detachment of internationals towards the British. Before he left, he wrote to his daughter Simone saying, It is of the greatest importance... And this is something that brings me to the hope of being able to drive this affair of mine right through to the end. Later he passed Hurbstadt, which was the last poor Hill town. Beyond was the unknown. By the 3rd of April, the detachment arrived at a farm close to Bosov. There was no sign of the British on the felt, but Lord Methuen was actually close by, and the poultry garrison in Bosov had now been beefed up from 300 to 7,000 men. That doomed the International Legion's lightning assault before it started, but they had no idea that this force of Democles was within striking distance. This was not a good omen for our French Boer. Back in Kronstadt, Colonel Maximov had begun to fret. He knew that Villabar Moriel moved fast, and it was now almost ten days since he had left, and no word had been sent back. They were growing uneasy. The morning of the 5th of April was hot. And it was then that Bilobar Moriel realized that the planned attack on Bosov could not go ahead. His men had been in the saddle for too long, and his boer tracker had become so hopelessly lost, the extra days had cost him dearly. So he allowed his men to rest for the day, with the plan to return to Krunstad beginning that night. The detachment took shelter in small kopis or hills on the farm Kriyapan. They noticed a farmer in a scotch cart who suddenly rushed from the farm on the road off to Bosov. Then, a black worker on the farm below also leapt aboard a horse. One of the International Legion marksmen raised his rifle to shoot, but Willebois pushed the rifle aside and said no. It was this worker who rode to Lord Methuen and warned him personally that the great Willebois was resting nearby. By 10.30am, Methuen knew exactly where the detachment was lying, and in his official report, he said, We received the information from two Africans and these informants led him and his unit directly to the copies in which Villabar hid on the farm. Methuen led a 500-strong detachment of imperial yeomanry, 250 men from the Kimberley Mounted Corps, and a battery of the 4th Field Artillery. villabar Moriel stood no chance, and should really have surrendered. But that's not what this French officer was willing to do. Here he faced his hereditary enemy, and as far as he was concerned, it was a fight to the death. A sentry on the copies was the first to spot the British car keys approaching. They thought the handful of point men were the only enemy soldiers, then moments later the felt was full of a column of car keys. De France colonel told his men to stand firm, but a few members of his detachment disagreed and galloped away. One was a Boer called Itzhak Meyer, who eventually fought for the British in the First World War, became a colonel himself, and won the DSO. He was still living in the town of Potchefstroom in South Africa in 1972, but that's another story. So the International Legion detachment prepared for the attack. They were arraigned on two copies, the larger crowned by a wild olive tree, under which Villabar Moriel took cover. The British pulled their artillery guns onto another copy around a kilometre away, along with the machine guns or Maxims. These proceeded to open fire, and by 2 p.m. in the afternoon, rifle and machine gun fire had raked the copies where the International Legion took shelter behind boulders. villebois Moriel was gambling on the sun to set and for a storm front which he saw approaching to break. He thought that should the rain begin, his men could extricate themselves from this predicament and ride off. But the fire of the Maxim machine guns wore down their defences. Men began to drop behind the boulders, hit by shrapnel and ricochets. After some time, his men complained and demanded he give the order to retreat, and then Villebois Moriel shouted, Here! We shall never surrender! Methuen was aware that lying behind the rocks in front of him was Villebois Moriel, the French colonel. He was determined to capture or kill the implacable enemy of the English. By now, his yeoman infantry had crawled to within a few hundred meters of the Corpies. The legion was fighting ferociously, however, and the yeomen could not launch their bayonet attack. Suddenly, one of the young Frenchmen by the name of Frank, who was a lieutenant of the Chasseuse d'Afrique, jumped up, rifle in hand, and shouted, Vive la France! Vive la Chasseuse d'Afrique! and was at once struck down with a bullet in the head. It was close to 6pm, eventually. The sun was setting, the four-hour battle appeared never-ending, and a black line of storm clouds moved in from the south. Now the yeoman had crawled to within twenty meters of the copies. It was man to man fighting at the outcrop, the final truth, if you've ever experienced battle. Knee bent back to a rock, his revolver cocked and ready, sat the Franco Colonel. He knew the English were coming. He could hear them seconds away. They were the same people his ancestor Comte de Bluebois Moriel had fought in twelve fourteen, and it was to be to the death. The final moments of his life approached. Colonel Eric Smith, leading the yeomen, stood up. He had only one arm, and in his single hand, he waved his helmet and whooped. The French colonel opened fire at point-blank range, but missed Colonel Smith killing Sergeant Patrick Campbell instead. Then villabar Moriel was shot through the heart and fell dead. His men immediately surrendered. Thus ended the life of one of the more interesting characters of the Anglo-Boer War. On the farm below, two Boer women heard wild shouts and huzzahs and asked the British soldiers guarding them what it meant. They said it meant victory. At that moment, the thunderstorm, which had built over the past hour, exploded in a frenzy. A young British infantryman described the scene as they carried Villabar-Mauriel's shrouded body from the kopi. The most awful thunderstorm I was ever in, flashes of lightning making the whole place as light as day for several seconds, blinding your eyes with glare. The thunder burst in air-splitting crashes over our heads, and the rain came down in torrents. The prisoners were marched off. Later, the British congratulated the French survivors for their gallantry, but most knew that it had been foolhardy, suicidal even. Furthermore, the expedition which Villabois had intended as a brilliant stroke of professionalism had been a military disaster. He had gambled and lost. In his final letter to his brother Christian he had written Tomorrow I launch myself into the unknown. And so we come to the tragic end of the life of Willebois Moriel, expert soldier and romantic, a Serrano de Bergerac character infused by ancient ideals but caught in a modernized world. Next week, we'll hear how Louis Boerter's forces in the eastern Transvaal begin to move and the Western Front guerrillas are mobilized, and also how Christian de Vet's plan to invade the Cape is botched. Don't forget to check out our website, abwarpodcast.com and you can contact me by email through that site. Until we meet again, goodbye. En zonder gedal langs die mooie rivierse vaal, het zij voor oorlogsdagen blij. O, breng mij terug naar die ootransvaal, daar waar mij